0: section eight of a scientific and practical treatise on american football for schools and colleges by henry l williams and almos alonzo Stagg. this librivox recording is in the public domain section eight the halfbacks and fullback the halfbacks and the fullback who is practically a third halfback stand usually from two to four yards behind the centre of the line they group themselves at short distances from one another, and in a way to best assist in carrying out the play which is about to be made. There is a difference in the latitude given the halfbacks and fullback on different teams in arranging themselves for each play. Some captains require these men to occupy the same position on every play, claiming that it is of great advantage in obscuring the play to have a fixed arrangement. On other teams, the half backs and fullback are allowed to move about. And shift their places to the position in which they think they can best help out the play. There is also a great difference among teams in the placing of the halfbacks and fullback in reference to each other and also in reference to the rush line. In general, the fullback is stationed behind the center and usually about a yard or a yard and a half further from the line than the halfbacks. On some teams, these three play close together, separated by not more than a yard or a yard and a half. On others, they are separated from two to three yards and a half. There is also a decided difference in the distance behind the line which the backs play. This varies from two to five yards. The arrangement of the backs should, in a measure, depend on the style of game to be played, and the style of game should be determined by the composition of a team. That is to say, that if it is deemed wise to play a centre game, it can best be done by bunching the backs, while, on the other hand, the combinations can be best made for an end game when the backs are more spread apart. Captains who are limited in the selection of their players will find it well worth their while to consider the arrangement of the backs, both in regard to their relative distance from each other, and also in regard to the distance which they stand behind the line. Indeed, there is an opportunity for fine generalship in deciding upon the place for these ground gainers, When the three men who are to occupy positions behind the line have been decided upon, there is also need of careful consideration in determining which position each one of the three shall fill. The fullback is usually selected for his ability to kick, and yet it is sometimes better that the man occupying that position should act as a halfback until the signal for a kick is given, and then drop back, while a halfback sometimes could do more effective work in the middle position during the general play. If one of the backs is slow, his best position is usually at full-back, for there he receives the greatest protection and help. The light, quick men can succeed better at half-back than the slow, heavy men. It frequently happens that one of the backs invariably carries the ball under the right arm and is able to use only the left effectively in blocking off, or vice versa. This fact should be considered in determining which position the men shall occupy, it is unfortunate for a half-back to be so limited, but many of them are, and they do not practice with the other arm enough to train it. Some naturally run in one direction better than in another, or some are surer and stronger foot, perhaps, when running around on a particular side. A player is sometimes put in the right or left position because the interference is stronger on that side, or possibly the arrangement is made to take advantage of a certain known strength or weakness in the team which they are to meet. The halfbacks and fullbacks are largely the ground-gainers for the team, and most of the advances into the enemy's territory are made by them. For this reason, only men who possess special qualifications are selected to fill these positions. In quickness and agility they should equal the quarterback. In point of speed, ability to dodge, courage, and dash, they should be unequaled by any man on the team. Again and again they must rush headlong into the line, oftentimes only to be hurled back by the opposing rushers who plunge through upon them yet never losing courage again and again they must come to the rally now attacking the opponent's centre by heavy plunging now trying to make a detour around the wings too great emphasis cannot be placed on quick-starting the inability to get under headway quickly is very often the difference between a first-rate halfback and a second-rate one The second rate halfback may be just as fast a runner and may be just as hard to stop when once underway, but he does not get under headway nearly so often because he loses so much time on his start that he is tackled before he passes the critical point in the run. On all plunges into the line, the utmost speed must be used in conjunction with the quick start. The distance is very short on which to get under headway, and there is need of the greatest force to project the runner through the resistance as well as need to reach that point of resistance in the shortest time. It is common with many elevens to have one heavy back to do the plunging into the line, but frequently this man is so slow in his start that he is not so effective for line-breaking against a strong defence as the lighter man would be. It very frequently happens that in choosing the half-backs, men have to be selected who have only part of the qualifications for the position, who perhaps can run fast, or again are what are termed fighters, but lack some of the other requisites. When such is the case, the captain should immediately take means to train these men in the other necessary qualifications for good halfback play. It is indispensable that a halfback should be able to run into a line hard time and again, and with no fear or hesitation. It is likewise most necessary that a halfback should be a powerful runner and not easily stopped, one who does not fall easily, but keeps his feet well when tackled, and struggles on for the gain of a few feet. But he would be a much more useful man if, at the same time, with this pluck, determination, and ability to stand on his feet under difficulties, and keep struggling forward, he also had the ability to dodge an opponent or ward him off with the extended arm, instead of running straight into him. Dodging and running can be cultivated through the study and practice of its points of deception, The underlying principle is the quick movement of the body, or a portion of the body, from a point where it would have been if it had continued in the same direction. In the most simple form of dodging the runner suddenly changes his direction. As usually practiced, the runner is obliged to slow up a great deal in order to change his course. In all dodging the runner, if at topmost speed, must slacken speed a little, just before he reaches the tackler, in order to reduce the size of his stride so that he may have a proper balance for projecting the body in another direction or so that he may make certain preliminary body motions which cannot be made when at full speed there are several ways of dodging but one man seldom possesses more than one or two the zigzag dodge which used to be so common when individual running and poor tackling were in vogue is performed by a combination of leg and body feints its weakness is that it retards the runner too much In another dodge, the runner strides suddenly one side with a long step. This is a very effective method for long-legged runners. In another, the runner sways his body from one side to the other, the legs being planted wide apart as each step is taken in a zigzag course. The runner moves in the same general direction until the opponent is reached and then darts to one side. Still another dodge is made by drawing the hips away, and in this dodge a clever use of the arm is valuable. It is one of the most effective, since the hips are usually the part aimed at in tackling. Another way is to duck under a tackler by bending the body low at the waist. This is practiced most effectively by small men, and is most valuable against high tackling. Another method is to turn the body completely around when about to be tackled, upon one foot as a pivot. This comes into splendid use when the tackler has been unable to grasp the runner with both hands. In another form of avoiding a tackler, the runner, on being approached from the side, slows up a little, whereupon the opponent delays just long enough to allow him to go around by putting on a burst of speed. Good dodging is not complete unless there is added to it the power to use the arms well in warding off. The latter supplements the former most effectively when well done. When the tackling is high, or when the runner is well bent over, the arm should be extended against the face or chest of the opponent. Often, on a long dive or reach for the hips by the tackler, the runner can break the hold by striking down with his arm. All the above styles of dodging can be acquired by practice. It is better to practice them with only one or two men to act as opponents, after the movement has been learned. There is another requisite needed by the halfback in addition to dodging, and that is the ability to follow an interferer or interferer as well. Halfbacks differ greatly in skill on this point. The work of escaping a tackler should not rest wholly in the interferer's hands, as it so often does. The halfback should supplement the latter's work by taking advantage of the protection given him to work every ruse and feint he knows. Where there are several interferers, there is a chance for the runner to move from one to the other as occasion suggests. It needs quick wit and agility to follow interferers well, but much can be learned by practice with or without opponents, and every halfback should devote himself to perfecting his play in this particular. The halfbacks must be good catchers, not only of kicked balls, but also, and especially, of balls passed from the quarterback. Oftentimes, the falls of a muff or a fumble can be laid to a poor pass, but if the quarterback is unsteady on his part there is all the more reason that the halfbacks and fullback be skillful catchers if weak in catching much practice should be given by the halfbacks to perfecting themselves they should work at this in conjunction with the quarterback in order that they may get used to each other in catching short passes it is usually better to catch the ball with the hands This is sure because the hands can adapt themselves much better than the arms to the position and shape of the ball when a man is running. In running sideways to the pass, as it is necessary to do in so many plays, the arms could not be used without checking the speed, while there need be no diminution in speed when the ball is caught in the hands, provided the quarterback does his work well. There are three ways of carrying the ball, and each has its proper occasions for use when the play is straight through the centre the general order to the half-back is to put the head down on a level with the waist gathering the ball up under the body with both arms because there could be no use for an arm to ward off an opponent until the line has been penetrated and there is great danger of losing the ball by the pulling and hauling to which the runner is subjected after the runner is well through the line and has a chance to run freely he should transfer the ball to the side of the body opposite the arm with which it is necessary to ward off. The runner should look for opponents as he emerges from the opening, and likewise for interferers. Where the play is through, the more open part of the line, the runner should usually carry the ball under the arm which is away from the opponents who are likely to meet him first, shifting it to the other arm when necessary. In this case, likewise, It is occasionally better to carry the ball in both hands until there is need for warding off an opponent, at which moment the ball can be easily shifted to whichever arm it is desired. This provides for any emergency. This way of carrying the ball is especially valuable in dodging, since the ball can be placed quickly under either arm and a better defense made, for if forced to dodge, the runner may transfer the ball to the arm away from his opponent and have the other free to ward off. By moving the ball from one side to the other in front of the body while running, the dodge will be made more effective. In carrying the ball under the arm, it should be held well forward, because it can be held more tightly in this position. The reason why the ball is often pulled out from under the arm is that it is held so far back that the strong muscles of the chest are of little assistance. When held in this position, the ball is often forced out from under the arm when the runner is thrown to the ground. By testing these two positions, it will be easily seen which is the safer way. If a runner is inclined to lose the ball, he should practice squeezing it in the most approved manner until he has trained himself to hold it fast under all circumstances. We have already spoken of the runner getting under headway quickly. It is also necessary that he should run with all his speed. Whether he plunges into the center part of the line or follows the interference out to the wings, unless he is obliged to slow down in order to receive the ball, to let a runner in ahead of him, or to get by an opponent. No runner is so invincible in all his play as he who rushes with all his strength, who shows by his every movement the determination and power with which he is charged, who inspires in his opponents a hesitancy and dread of tackling him, who never gives up when tackled but keeps struggling on, twisting, squirming, "'and wriggling himself out of the grasp of one after another "'until he can no longer advance. "'Such a man is worth a dozen who hesitate. "'The dashing runner is the one who usually makes the advances. "'If he goes through an opening, he goes through on a jump. "'Such a man, when checked, will keep his feet and legs going like a treadmill "'and will bore his way through in spite of resistance. "'This sort of pushing accomplishes wonders.' For effective application of power it is worth vastly more than the same amount of force applied slowly, for the attack is sudden and continuous. Its effectiveness, however, is altogether dependent on the head being well bent over, so that the whole weight and impetus of the body is forward, for the legs are then in a position to exert the greatest power. Another reason for running into the line well bent over is that it is much more difficult to tackle a runner when in that attitude, It is impossible to get under a short man in order to make a low tackle when he is coming straight toward one, and the result is that the tackler receives the runner's head in his stomach, or if he be good in the use of his arm, he will very likely have a hand thrust into his face or against his chest. At such times, the runner is very often able to slip past. Again, running with the head down enables the runner always to fall forward when tackled, This usually means a further gain of two or three yards. In running low, care should always be taken not to lose the balance. After considerable practice, the balance can be very well kept when running much bent over and still great speed be maintained. As soon as the line is cleared and there are no opponents very near, the runner should assume a more upright position so that he can run at his utmost speed, lowering his head whenever he thinks best. In making the end plays... The runner need not put his head down except, perhaps, when it is necessary to duck under a tackler. He must now put on speed up to the full limit of the interferers, following them very closely, now using this one and now that, according as the danger shifts. He must constantly be on the alert for changing his position to take advantage of every little help, or to prevent from being pocketed, At the same time, being ready to break away from his interferers if he sees he can gain more by so doing. In general, the runner should keep behind his helpers until the last, but now and then an opportunity comes which he ought to accept. The light footed, agile man who can keep his balance well is physically best capacitated for running behind interferers. To do it well, the runner should be able to change his stride to meet the emergencies which arise in passing from one interferer to another or in following very close when a long stride would cause him to stumble over his interferers. Another requirement which the backs, or at least one of them, presumably the full-back, should have, is the ability to kick. It would be well if all three possessed this ability, for there are times, now and then, when consternation could be brought to the opponents by the half-back returning a kick. But this could happen only occasionally and it is much more important that the half-backs be especially strong in running with the ball, for that will be their main work. The full-back, however, should be a skillful kicker both in punting and drop-kicking. It requires long practice to punt well. The oval shape of the ball precludes simply tossing or dropping it from the hands and then kicking it to get the best results. The mechanical construction and adjustment of the muscles of the leg and body in their relation to kicking require careful study. Long practice is necessary to be able to regulate the power, and at the same time determine the angle and direction which the ball shall take. All the practice which the full-back can get to acquire skill in punting will be well repaid, for it will make him of inestimable value to his eleven. Where the full-back does not know how to punt, the following directions will be found helpful. Hold the ball between the hands, the ends pointing to and from the body, lacings up. Extend the arms horizontally in front and bend forward with the body until the ball is held just below the level of the waist. Take a short step forward with the foot not used in kicking, and at the same time drop the ball from the hands and bring the kicking leg quickly forward to meet the falling ball about knee-high. Do not try to kick hard at first. Attend simply to dropping, not tossing, the ball without changing the relative position of the axis. This must be closely regarded or there will never be any certainty as to where the ball will go. The first point noticed by a novice will be that the ball reaches the ground before his foot meets it. This shows that the foot was not started forward soon enough. One way to obviate that difficulty is to drop the ball from a higher point, but the best point has already been selected and the tardy member must be trained to be on time. It will also be noticed that sometimes the ball will meet the leg above the ankle. The aim should be to have the ball fit into the concave of the extended foot, and it will probably be necessary to give the ball a slight toss forward in order to make the kick powerfully. Care should be taken when doing this that the ball is not turned or tossed so far that power is lost. In practicing in this way, it will at first be noticed that the whole force of the blow will be given by using the leg from the knee down. This one can readily see would weaken the blow because the leverage is short in the muscles which extend the lower leg, not especially powerful, and at the same time it is very trying to the knee joint. The most powerful kick would be one which had the leverage of the full length of the leg, thus bringing into play the strong abdominal muscles to add speed and power. In making this kick, the leg should be extended at full length, with toes pointed, and should swing on the hips as an axis. After the forward kick has been learned so that it can be well executed, the side kick may be attempted. In this case the ball is dropped a little to the outside. The great advantage in the side kick is that if not too much on one side, a very considerable increase in power can be gained because a longer swing can be given to the leg, and because the swing is further assisted by some additional muscles which give increased power. Another advantage is that the fullback can take a step to the side and kick around an opponent. In practicing, do not keep the leg rigid through all the swing. The muscles must be sufficiently lax to make the swing easy, the rigid contraction coming just before the foot reaches the ball. The angle at which the ball is kicked can be regulated by elevating or lowering the point of the ball farthest away from the body or by dropping the ball in such a way that the position of the foot in the arc described by it shall regulate the direction which the ball shall take if the kicker wishes to make a high kick he drops the ball so that the foot reaches it when knee high or above and when he wishes to make a low kick he allows the ball to get closer to the ground before his foot meets it by trial it will be found that a point varying from about six inches above to six inches below the height of the knee is the place of greatest convenience and power after punting and drop kicking has once been learned the whole practice should be centered on kicking quickly. The ball should be caught, adjusted, dropped, and kicked just as quickly as possible. In practicing this, it will be found expedient to have several balls for the quarterback to pass. After practicing for a few weeks in this way, the fullback will find that he can stand considerably nearer the rush line and still avoid having the ball blocked. The drop kick is made by dropping the ball on one of the small ends and kicking it with the toe at the instant it rises from the ground some kickers prefer to have the ball lean toward them at a slight angle as it strikes others to have the ball lean slightly toward the goal and still others drop it with the long axis vertical the latter style is most commonly used practice in all these will determine in which position the foot meets the ball most naturally the ball should be kicked with a free and easy though quick swing of the leg if close under the goal the kick may be made more quickly with a short half swing whereas in punting the leg is swung from the hip and the large abdominal muscles of the body brought strongly into play in drop kicking very accurate rapid and effective work can be accomplished when the swing is made almost altogether from the knee joint with only a slight swing from the hip beginners frequently make a great mistake in drawing the foot far back in preparation for a long drop kick By extending the leg below the knee quickly and suddenly, so that the point of the toe will meet the ball at the instant it rises from the ground, great distance can be attained with little apparent outlay of force. It requires a great deal of practice to be quick and accurate at the same time. The fullback should place himself a little farther from his rush line in attempting the drop kick than in punting, because the ball starts slower and it is not so easy to control the angle it takes. In trying for a goal from a place kick, the ball should be brought out to a spot from which the angle to the goal and the distance from it are most favorable for the trial. If the touchdown is made directly behind the goal, or near it, the ball should not be carried far out into the field. A point should be selected where there will be no danger of the opposing rushers stopping the ball, and from which it will be easy to kick the goal. Some men prefer to make the trial from a point not more than ten yards away while others carry the ball out fifteen or twenty yards. The former always make a quick half-swing of the leg in kicking, lifting upward with the foot as they kick. The latter usually kick with the leg swinging full and free from the hip. The ball should be held between the outstretched hands of the quarterback or some other player as he lies extended flat upon his stomach. The best way of holding the ball is to place the fingers of one hand behind it, about three inches from the lower end, "'the fingers of the other hand being placed at a corresponding point at the top "'and slightly in front of the ball. "'The ball should be held in firm but easy balance, "'and the fingers should be so placed that it will be easy to turn it "'and least interfere with it when placing it down for a kick. "'Great care must be given to holding the ball steady. "'When the spot has been selected from which the trial is to be made, "'and the player who is to hold the ball has prostrated himself "'in firm balance on the ground, At right angles to the line of direction, and on the right or left side of the kicker, according to the foot which he is to use, the ball being properly held between the fingers with the elbows resting on the ground, the kicker must proceed to sight the ball. He first asks the holder to turn the lacing of the ball toward him. Next he tells him how he wishes the ball to point and at what angle, if any, using such expressions as head forward and head up meaning that the ball is to be tipped away from the kicker in the first instance and held vertically in the second. Other expressions like head out and head in indicate that the point of the ball is to be moved in or out in reference to the player holding it. The sighting of the ball toward the goal can be done best by using the lacings as a guide, the holder being directed to twist the ball out or in in reference to himself by the expressions lacings out, lacings in. When the ball has been well aimed and everything is ready, the kicker should tell the holder to touch it down, at the same time moving forward to kick. In touching the ball down, the holder must be very careful not to change the position. As the ball touches the ground, the lower hand is removed in order not to interfere with its course. It is well to remove beforehand all pebbles or tufts of grass at the spot selected for placing the ball down, for a slight unevenness is often sufficient to prevent a goal. The kicker should keep his eye on some point on the ball as he steps forward and aim to kick it in that spot. Practice beforehand will determine the best place to give the impetus. When the ball is vertical, this spot will be found by trial to be very near the ground. When the ball leans toward the kicker, the best point for the kick is just below the lacing. The height of the point above the ground is nearly the same in both cases, but the point on the ball changes as the ball leans. If there is a wind blowing, the kicker must take into consideration its force and direction in pointing the ball. In catching kicked balls in long passes, it is usually better to catch them with the arms. Every effort should be made to take the ball when about waist-high, for at that point the arms can be better adjusted to it. The body also, here much softer, can at this part be drawn in to form a sort of pocket, as it were, for the ball." Care must be taken not to have the ball strike high up on the chest, for it is then difficult to shape the arms well to receive it, and the ball rebounds much quicker from its firm walls. There are two ways of catching with the arms. In one, the arms work in conjunction with the body, the latter being used to stop the ball while the arms close around it. In this style, one hand and forearm should be held lower than the point of contact with the body, while the other hand and forearm should be held above that point. The arm should be bent and should not usually be extended far from the body. In the other case, the ball is caught entirely with the arms and hands. This can be done only when it is kicked well into the air. The arms are held parallel in front of the body about six inches apart, being half-bent at the elbows and wrists. The instant the ball strikes, the hands are curled forward over it. The fault of catching in this way usually lies in the catcher failing to bring his elbows near enough together and so leaving a space for the ball to go through. And nearly all plays the backs, from the nature of their duties, are among the first men to start. Their position behind the line renders their every motion conspicuous, and the watchful rushers upon the opposing team will be upon the constant lookout for some movement, glance, or position of the body that betrays the direction of the play which is about to be executed. On this account the backs should take the greatest precaution to conceal their intentions." It is of assistance sometimes in deceiving the opponents to assume a position as if being about to go in one direction when an entirely different move is intended, but if this is practiced too frequently it will defeat its own end. End of section 8